Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the pod medic, and I'm looking forward to tonight's episode. We've got the whole gang in the house tonight, which is always fun to do. And uh, that's that's important because we've got a lot to talk about tonight. Um, Before we get to that, though, we've got to start off with the first primary team member here, and that is Sam Bradley. Hey, Sam. And Sam Bradley is freezing her patoot off. Um, We had like two weeks of fall and it all went away. And now we're in a freeze warning situation for the next few days. What the heck is going on? Dan, pick on you. Well, it is (laughs) fall after all, right? It is October. And I think you had snow um, last September in the early part of it. So you're already doing better than last year, right? I think but, uh, on October 13th, we had a snowstorm. Yeah, and it's it, a certain. Okay, yeah, go ahead, Sam. No, I was going to say we didn't get snow today, even though that was kind of like maybe, but we did get some rain. So I don't know oh, yeah. when, when the snow is going to come. Well, you know, it's October and we can only last so long, right? But it's a big shock to the system, not just out in Colorado, uh, where it was obviously sort of like summer. Summer has been hanging on in a lot of parts of the U.S. in October, where we've had temperatures. I think it's going to be in the upper 80s uh, Friday in D.C. and parts of the Mid-Atlantic. Uh, very unusual, and uh, but a big change on the way for parts of the Northeast. We're cooling down there back into the 50s and 60s, more typical of fall and maybe the first snowflakes of the season in the uh, high elevations of the uh, Northeast in New England Sunday night into early Monday. So fall is coming, although it's certainly been slow this year. And uh, it's a big it's a big shock to the system when we've got, you know, had such a long stretch of mild weather and uh Obviously, you out there, Sam, it's uh, definitely on the chillier side, and it, it should rebound, though. It's, it's not going to stay cold forever, as is typically the case in Colorado. But, you know, a mid-30s uh, in the evening is certainly a, a chilly evening in October. Yeah. Well, we might see it warm up, say, May. <laughs> it seems like we skipped right through fall. Anyway, it'd be nice if it would warm up a little bit. I like the cool. Oh, yeah. It'll be back into the 70s by Sunday. So, Dan, another question. Um, I was seeing something in the paper about a El Nina. Is that the right one? I think we're now in La Nina. So El Nino. Yeah, La Nina. I knew I could. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so La so- Nina is when the – oh, boy, I got to get all this right because it's, it's not an area of, of mine that I'm really in touch with. But La Nina is when the uh, water temperatures of the uh, Pacific Ocean and parts of the Pacific are cooler than normal. Um, and that can impact the uh, can impact the United States weather. Um, uh, we, we see that you know basically this the temperature the temperatures in the Pacific the ocean temperatures fluctuate obviously and when they're warmer than normal in a certain area it's El Nino and when they're cooler than normal in a certain area it's La Nina and that impacts weather in the United States and other parts of the world as well. So um, doesn't always ha- you know it depends on the strength and how how warm or how cool those water temperatures are, but we were in a La Nina last winter too. Uh, so that's not the only driving factor in terms of what happens in the atmosphere and what happens in the weather, but it's, it's one of those factors. And so we might see some similar trends this coming fall and winter that we saw last winter. We'll have so to watch. Mr. Kyle, you want to add to that? And I, I think what I read was it would make it wetter on the East coast and drier for us. That's right, Sam. So, right, those are the typical impacts that we would see across the United States, speaking very broadly from a La Nina pattern uh, as as it's as it sets up. But 
um, as Dan alluded to, right? It's it's something that forecasters are are looking at, but it's not the be all to end all because it, with these known you know natural variabilities that exist in our atmosphere, the, these these existing circulations, right? El Nino and La Nina, right? They switch places about every you know three to seven years or so on average. But you know those ripple effects that come downstream from you know those changes of ocean water in the Pacific or uh, Central Pacific, right? Um, that that influences the weather that we see locally here. But uh, well, right? Typically, right? We may see drier areas or wetter areas across the U.S. Uh, it, it's important to note that right each each storm, especially in the winter, each winter storm is very very different depending on the exact location of that storm track and and lots of other factors as well. So it's just one of many things that we meteorologists and uh, are looking at when it comes to seeing what may happen uh, in the future weather-wise. Jamie, you have a question? Yeah, actually, I did. I, you know, we're talking about La Nina and El Nino and the, those types of broader. Uh, effects on um, weather patterns. And I'm curious how things like that are affected by climate change, um, if it's even known. And I'm not sure who can answer that question. Or if you know Kyle or or Dan can address some of that. I'm going to defer to Kyle if he knows. I, I, I cannot speak to that one. That's something that I have not had a chance to read up on. Maybe Becky. Yes, Becky. Yeah, no, I'll defer to Kyle. Climate is <laughs> not my forte. How <laughs> can you help Kyle. us out? It's all you. Right on, friends. Uh, so, um, Jamie, that is a great question, right? So, how are these? How are these naturally these 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 pre-existing and and very well known and studied uh, circulations and 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 things in our atmosphere, how are they being influenced by global climate change? I think what, what's really important to, to focus on here is that these are occurring in the background in conjunction with changes on the global climate scale, right? That's that's really uh, the, the big takeaway um, that, that I really want to emphasize here, right? Because how a particular natural variation in, in Earth's atmosphere or the ocean is being affected by global climate change, those are areas of active research, um, not something that I'm particularly uh, well studied or well read up on. But uh, when I teach um, climate adaptation planning for, for my public safety friends on behalf of the uh, federal government, right, we, we really talk about that, you know, there's, there's many different influences on Earth's uh, global climate system, both those that are natural and pre-existing and those that are being influenced by global climate change, specifically, right, that that human uh, component, the anthropogenic component of global climate change. And, right, what we typically might expect, uh, let's say, from your, like, oh, well, La Nina typically gives us this type of weather, you know, for, for winter, this type of winter, Right, those impacts from your typical, uh, say, La Niñas or El Nino events that we once knew aren't going to be the impacts that we see going forward because of uh, other changes that are actively occurring on the global climate scale. You used a big word there, Jamie. Did you write that down? Yes, he did. He just put it up in the sidebar. Yeah, he gets the big word award of the night. Anthropogenic. And we're not even onto the medical stuff yet, folks. <laughs> well, they got to hit us with their, their weather words first. That was very well stated, Kyle. Well, well stated. <laughs> very good. Okay, so um, 
one more question on the weather. So, Ms. Becky, from a disaster planning platform, uh, what are the kinds of things that emergency management people should be concerned about in the winter? Ooh, that's a that's a fun question. You could go a lot of different directions with that. Um, obviously, the West, this is a time where they tend to have um, pretty significant systems, so they can have uh, a lot of um, really strong winds, so you can have power outages. Uh, the high peaks in the like Oregon and Washington can have snow, you can have rain, um, and then obviously across much of the rest of the country, snow, blizzards, ice, all of that impeding travel, um, making for dangerous driving conditions. So, you know, it's October. It's a good idea to start assessing um, your home and your vehicle uh, for winter weather preparedness. So, you know, once all the leaves are down, making sure the gutters are cleared out, uh, making sure your tires on your car are all weather or snow tires, that those still exist, or if that's just like what my dad would say. Um, I think I have all, all, all weather tires on my car. Um, but I think importantly too, for the East, as we're heading into, um, to tomorrow night into Saturday, we're going to have a pretty strong, um, cold front come through, um, along with some, some showers, some gusty winds. So that's going to probably bring down some leaves. That's going to cause some slick driving conditions. So it's really a time of year to be very, uh, aware of the forecast and aware that it can change very quickly and what that means for your particular location, whether it's, you know, winds, and, you know, leaves making the road slick or snow if you're going up in elevation, change in visibility, things like that. Um, just making sure you're really weather aware and prepared for rapidly changing conditions. Really good points. Kyle, did you have a thought? You're typing something. So you could just say it. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Uh, when, uh, when I think about uh, community uh, or winter preparedness uh, from an emergency management standpoint, right? I, I typically kind of think about that both from a community standpoint as well as from an organizational standpoint, right? Because um, a lot of what uh, we we do with emergency management, right, is is coordination amongst uh, various entities at at various levels of government, right? That could be tribal or local, that could be state, uh, regional, national, right? However, you wherever you might sit, and and th really thinking about. Um, this is a great time of year to right as we transition into the these cooler months, right? Really thinking about uh, previous uh, winters, last winter even, right? Uh, lessons learned from previous events, reviewing and updating uh, your any emergency management or operations plans that you use specific for winter, as well as uh, if you've brought in any new staff or contract staff, making sure that they're read up on those plans, policies, and safety procedures, uh, amongst other things. And uh, of course, as always, 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 make sure that your staff know and your community knows how to receive and how to share weather information. Oh, absolutely. Okay, we're gonna switch gears. And Dr. Joe, I have a COVID question for you. Um, I was reading in our local paper. Now, when we talked a bit last week, you said Memphis is starting to look pretty good as far as COVID cases in the hospitals and so forth. But according to this, our county specifically is bracing for a surge, not just in COVID-19, but RSV and influenza. So why is RSV in that mix? Well, it's just that time of year uh, that where we normally see uh, upticks in many respiratory illnesses, particularly the viral respiratory illnesses. 
uh, as you know, folks spend less time outdoors, more time indoors, um, kids in school, et cetera. So it's just that time of year. And I think part of the concern this year is, uh, you know, the upper respiratory symptoms with the cough and fever and all that sort of stuff, uh, now could be, you know, COVID, RSV, influenza, or anything else. It just makes the differential uh, broader, and it makes it a bit more challenging to figure out what's going on, and it increases the possibility of coincident illnesses where somebody is has both COVID and influenza and is likely to be uh, even sicker uh, as they're dealing with both those infections at the same time. So is it at all common that people with COVID would end up perhaps with pneumonia, especially the older population? Uh, I think there's no question about that. Uh, we, you know, we, we continue to see that. We do not know, um, or really have not been, do not have any way to accurately predict how, uh, what the combination of influenza and COVID-19 are likely to look like and whether or not they you know, may may well be synergistic in their levels of uh, illness that they produce, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think that's part of the reason that uh, a lot of the medical community has been looking very aggressively at uh, efforts to get the, the COVID pandemic kind of under control as much as we could prior to having to deal with, uh, you know, another complicating infection in, in the middle of all that. Oh, yeah, that could get really complicated. So switching gears again, we're talk, going to talk about pointy things that hurt. And Kyle, you mentioned something in our email chat that I hadn't heard of. You want to mention that? Kind of a surprise. Yes, Sam. This, uh, this was definitely um, something that caught my eye. Uh, when I was uh, perusing on, on Twitter yesterday evening and uh, started seeing some reports coming out of Norway where uh, today, Thursday, as we record, a 37-year-old uh, male was uh, charged in connection with uh, what is a bow and arrow rampage. It's just being called in a small town in Norway in which uh, five people were killed and three were wounded and uh, authorities are uh, calling it uh, an act of terrorism. Uh, this individual seems to have targeted people at random, uh, and one of those that was injured, uh, it was an off-duty police officer who was Ooh. actually found in a supermarket of all places, and this was just one of many locations where the attack took place. And uh, thinking back, um, some of you may recall, uh, this year marked the 10-year anniversary of the uh, 2011 uh terrorist attacks in Norway, referred to uh, by many as right 22 July or the 22-7 attacks, where there were two sequential domestic terrorist attacks uh, that killed 77 people. For context, right, murder is very rare in Norway, where um, in a country with a population of just over 5 million, there were um, 31 murders last year, mostly with people that knew each other. So uh, rare events, but uh, this one definitely um, was stood out to me just because of the, the the method that was used in this particular case. Yeah, a guy must have had some Viking blood or something. That's that's bizarre. But you see somebody walking into a grocery store with a bow and arrow. Um, 
I think that'd make me a tad bit nervous. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Well, I know we're going to be talking about active shooters in general um, and, and management of those types of patients. And I think it might be interesting to, to, to hear from Joe a little bit about, you know, penetrating injuries of various kinds. Um, you know, how does an how does an arrow wound differ from a bullet wound um, from, you know, either high velocity or low velocity gunshot wounds? Um, so I, I'm, I'm just curious about that in general. Have you seen any of those, Joe? <laughs> well, uh, bow and arrow injuries are certainly not terribly common. We tend to see those, uh, at least in my part of the country, more during uh, late fall when the uh, uh, bow season is open for deer and that sort of stuff. And uh, generally those are accidental, uh, although uh, obviously occasionally we get some that are not. Uh, and I think Jamie, Jamie sort of categorized those pretty nicely in that, uh, you know, for, for, uh, most bow and arrow injuries, they tend to be, uh, compared to firearms anyway, relatively low velocity. And, uh, obviously some of the arrowheads are quite sizable and extremely sharp and can do tremendous amounts of, uh, cutting and penetrating damage. Uh, they don't tend to do the cavitation type injuries like you see with uh, um, uh, gunshot wounds, et cetera. But nevertheless, they can be absolutely devastating injuries. Yeah, I'm imagining, you know, distance is a critical factor as far as how far the arrow would, would penetrate. But that's pretty scary stuff. Um, I I go ahead. I was just going to say, I think with some of the compound bows uh, and stuff that are out now, arrows uh, can carry tremendous force with them and um, can absolutely do uh, significant penetration uh, into tissues with subsequent uh, substantial amounts of damage as well. I guess crossbows would... I believe they go farther and faster and have a lot more trajectory to them. I'm not a master at this, as you can tell. Anybody else know anything about that? I guess not. Okay. So, moving right along, uh, speaking of penetrating objects, we've had, you know, we've gotten a little bit of a chat about this in the last few weeks because of the fact we've had these active shooter incidents, um, two of which were in Joe's town of Memphis, um, and that's a little scary. So is it common, you know, we'll focus on Memphis because you're there and you know that, but do they have EMS protocols across the country for penetrating trauma like this and active shooter? So there are actually two different things there. There's the trauma itself, and then there's the situation in which those occur. Yeah, and I think you're right, Sam. Certainly, uh, you know, penetrating trauma from gunshots and stab wounds, et cetera, are, uh, I would think, pretty pretty solid uh, and consistent uh, protocols across the country. Uh, I think they're continues to be substantial variability in the way these active uh, shooter incidents are handled. 
um, and, and because they require substantial amounts of coordination between law enforcement and EMS. And they're a bit of a change in the kind of standard paradigm there. Uh, so they represent a, a, a bit of a different way of doing things. Uh, and I, so I think that the active shooter protocols are likely to vary quite a bit more than the, the more specific um, uh, medical care protocols for uh, people injured by penetrating trauma. Well, yeah, it, it has a lot to do with the type of training. You know, I'm thinking back before I get to that. I'm thinking back to, you know, cold zone, warm zone, hot zone. Ambulance people in particular never can go into the hot zone. And, you know, depending on where you were, whether you'd be allowed in the warm zone. Uh, but then when they had the Aurora incident some years ago here, that seemed to be something that really changed the thinking in terms of we've got to get to these people faster. They could be officers down, they could, you know, whoever is down. Uh, if we sit there and wait for police to go in and, and clear everything, then a lot of people may die. And so the concept of doing training with fire and PD and in some case ambulance folks to create that secure barrier around the firefighters and then do a grab and run kind of approach just to get them out of the line of fire and start treating them right away. I think that's one of the incidents that really changed that paradigm, don't you think? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, and you very succinctly summed up what the issues are uh, based on, you know, sort of the old approach, which was everybody uh, EMS, particularly in fire, you know, are held away from the scene until law enforcement uh, has secured the scene. And I think when there's large numbers of uh, patients uh, involved in those situations, uh, that it, it's it's all the more important for very rapid intervention by uh, first responders and EMS. Uh, to get in there quickly in order to maximize the number of lives that are saved. Uh, the techniques are fairly simple and straightforward. You just got to get in there and do it. And uh, so I think it's very much about working with your law enforcement folks to make certain that, you know, they understand that not only is their job to stop the shooter, but to protect uh, EMS and first responders to be able to get to those that are already victims as quickly as possible and as safely as possible. Uh, and, I, you know, I think law enforcement ha is very focused on going after the bad guy and uh, that oftentimes the, the secondary uh, approach of we need to um, get in here and provide some life-saving care just uh, gets lost in the intensity of the minute. And uh, that's part of where the training really has to kick in and make a difference. Uh, Kyle mentioned in the sidebar rescue task force or RTF training. And we did that when I was working for a department in Northern California, the entire police department and the entire fire department were trained in how to do this. Um, so that was really important. And along with that, you have cops that are trained to at least do bleeding control. And if they know what to do, they're more likely to do it. Jamie, you had some thoughts. 
Yeah, and I was curious, Joe, you know, one of the things that seemed to come out of places like Aurora, um, Colorado, and other incidents, um, we saw in some of these cases um, police actually, you know, loading patients into the back of their police units and just transporting them to the the trauma center directly um, without waiting for EMS to arrive. Um, And then that seemed to have a positive effect on outcomes. Do you want to talk a little bit about how the transport paradigm has changed a little bit in these situations? Yeah, I think you bring up a really great question. And uh, I I think the data is somewhat incomplete here. Um, There there is definitely some data related to some of these incidents where uh, law enforcement literally loaded people up in their car and drove them to hospital. And you know, if you if if you look at the relatively speaking small numbers of patients who were handled that way, their outcomes didn't seem to be much different. Um, but I think that data is a little bit incomplete. I, I think the challenges there is that many patients were transported to the closest hospital, not the trauma center. Uh, and subsequently had to be, you know, transferred again. And, you know, did that result in a delay, et cetera? Uh, Were the patients that law enforcement transported sort of self-selected? In other words, were you not hurt so bad that you couldn't get yourself to the attention of a police officer? Kyle, you, um, you just put something in the sidebar I'd like you to talk about. Sure thing, Sam. And one of the the things kind of that uh, if, if we can kind of get back to how probably a lot of us were trained, right, when it comes to triage, right, there's triage that's performed and, right, there's any number of methods and, and acronyms that exist uh, to, to guide us through that. Um, but, right, typically, right, it's triage, then there's some life-saving interventions and treatment, and then people are, are transported uh, as directed, typically, right, by some sort of um, you know, triage unit leader at the scene that's then kind of directing or, you know, kind of, or transport unit leader, right, that's then directing from the scene, right, who goes first, right? And when this this uh, incident that we talked about, this example from Aurora, right, this kind of flips that on its head where, yes, there's some triage, uh, you know, to what level we, we can't be exactly sure, but then there's transport and then there's treatment, uh, perhaps then intervention. So we're kind of changing that that flow, that model, and right, as Joe said, right, you know, the data, uh, albeit incomplete at this point, it'll be truly interesting uh, to see what, uh, as more studies are done, what what those what those end results show as we can start to fill in some of those gaps in knowledge and determine, right, should we perhaps be rethinking the order in which we're sort of performing the, these functions on scene versus at a definitive care facility? Ah, oh, good. Very good point. You know, thinking back to Aurora and the reason I fixate on that was because we used it as a training mechanism for our fire guys and we had the actual audio from the dispatch center to the first in engine and everything changed so quickly as they're en route well no they set up a command post over here well no it's over there we had to set up a tree set up a triage over there because the cops came running out with people so then that and then you'd hear from an ambulance going, hey, I got five criticals here. Anyone want to help me out? So 
it was just chaos. I mean, it was a huge theater. There's people getting spit out all of these different doors. There was no way of organizing it, you know, originally. So I imagine there was a whole lot of after-action items that changed. Becky, you have a comment. Yeah, I was just thinking back to um, Columbine, actually, and a lot yeah. of similarities to Aurora and that police had no idea you know, how many shooters there were, what was really going on. And to make matters worse, media was on site. And so you were getting these, this real-time view of still a very, very active shooter situation with the media and, you know, live streaming footage showing where, showing the shooters exactly where first responders may have been. Um, And I remember that being, you know, in some of the books that were written afterwards, that being a, a point of like a, t- a major takeaway of what not to do in in future active shooter situations. You cannot have the media there reporting as it's still unfolding before the scene is secure. It's a danger, a hazard to you know everyone still on site, which includes the first responders. Yeah, Kyle just sent us a uh, a note about the Route 91 Music Festival in Las Vegas. That oddly, Jamie and I were down there. Soon enough after that, the, the the yellow tape was still up, and that was all kind of bizarre. But I, there's an actual after action report that would be interesting. And, and we read. actually actually were able to get some some um, firsthand accounts from yes. some people during that conference we were at right after that. And um, I'll have to pull up the links from the disaster podcast that covered that. So. Um, we will we will yeah, pull I, that together, and um, I'll put them in the links in the show notes for this episode. Oh, that would be great, because I remember we talked to uh, one of the Clark County firefighters who, captain, I believe, and they had just started a CISM program. So that was something that fit in there really well. So, Joe, speaking of your incidents in Memphis, uh, has there been time to really collate that information and come up with some good after action items, it, will it change anything in Memphis on how you're dealing with these things? We are beginning to get those organized and uh, look at doing some after action uh, activities on a broader scale. By that, I mean uh, multiple agencies as opposed to just internal within the primary responding agency. Uh, to see what we can do to improve that. I, I think there's always things to learn. Um, you know, I, I initially showed up at the back of that uh, uh, grocery store uh, and uh, subsequently realized that all the patients are going out the front door. Uh, and so had to had to reposition myself around the other side of the building. So was there an actual you know, triage point there? Well, uh, yes, sort of out front is where everybody was was initially being brought out. And so it's it's just a matter of uh, nobody happened to come out the back door. Part of that was just how the shooter worked his way through the store and where he ended up it was, you know, toward the back of the store. And so, you know, everybody was working from the front in as opposed to coming in from the back. So. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff that you don't know uh, in real time and, and obviously can't plan for. So uh, that's uh, yet another part of those things that makes them quite challenging, especially in real time, to uh, to sort through. Really, and, and every incident obviously is different. Dan? 
Yeah, I was going to ask anyone really here in the group, like what types of trends, if any, you've seen in terms of organizations preparing for these types of events with training or resources for their their staff or drills or sort of, have you seen any types of things like whether that's being done more often or if it still needs work on people, you know, being aware of what to do in these types of situations or, or organizations giving their their employees the tools for that type of thing and, and, and do they have plans? I can talk a little bit about that. Um, I teach at the local community college um, and they are, uh, and, and I know for a fact for the, for the local schools as well, um, they, they do quite a bit of training on um, for, with both the students and the faculty and staff uh, having to do with um, proper management of, you know, an, an emergency situation that involves a, a risk or a danger roaming the campus and some some say sense of the other and it can be a variety of things um that lock things down um you know when do you run when do you hide when do you fight those types of things and um so i know for from the organizations that i belong to uh that is something that is as actively dealt with on an annual basis um and for the local school teachers in the um k through 12 program um that's something they have to renew that training um every year um whereas with the community college it's kind of we went through training in person and then there's, there's an online component we we follow up with annually but for the the k through 12 teachers and aides and and staff it is um it is something they do like an in-person training every year on. Good deal. So, Joe, that's, of course, what you do at Paragon. Uh, you run these massive experiential exercises on exactly that type of scenario, right? Yeah, we do. And I think Jamie, you know, hit on an important point there. That is there continues to be significant inconsistency in the integration of these uh, approaches, plans, and response systems to these events, and, and therefore we see, you know, large variations in um, uh, in, in how teams and and uh, entities and departments respond to them. Yeah, it's, it, I would think it has to be one of those things where everybody trains and works together. Or you, it's just going to create more problems, as it has in the past. I would think at this point that most areas would would be leaning in that direction. I certainly hope so. So as much I hate to close this discussion because it's such a good one, but it's it's about that time. So Joe, did you have any final thoughts? Well, I, I'll simply encourage everybody to realize that uh, these events can happen anywhere, anytime, uh, as we certainly have witnessed here locally. And, um, you know, pandemic or not really doesn't matter. Uh, the the real world goes on and uh, encourage everybody to uh, remain vigilant and prepare. Really good point. Very good point. Dan, thoughts? Oh, nothing more for me. Just really interested in this conversation. Yep, and and Joe's right. Unfortunately, this will continue to be the case. Unfortunately, Kyle. Well, Sam, when it comes to um, active harbor events, I think it really comes down to the knowledge of the 
the first responders of what their agency's um, operations plans are for these types of um, active harmer or mass casualty events, knowing what those are. And if you don't know, asking the the questions now uh, so that you can get uh, informed, get prepared. And finally, uh, as is written in every after action report, even now that we're, we're so far post 9-11, communication is key because big city uh, police and, and public safety departments, they can uh, do much of this internally and handle that response. But when it comes to integrating resources from disparate agencies, we still have communication challenges. So get comfortable with changing off of your primary talk group or your primary channel, because that's what you may have to do and get comfortable with it now before you're stressed. Amen. And that comes from our communication guru. Uh, Ms. Becky, any thoughts or questions? I guess I would just stress from an individual perspective to always maintain situational awareness. Um, obviously, this can apply to weather, but obviously also very much applies to the topic that we've just been discussing. You know, whenever you're in a new place, if you're in a crowd, if you're, you know, out walking around, just make sure you're aware of, of you know, what's around you, where you might exit if you need to, um, you know, things like that. I think that's important. Unfortunately, in today's world, to, to always just be thinking that kind of in the back of your head, um, I know it's a, a good reminder for me as well. So, Yeah, it's a good reminder for everyone, and especially in this world when we're so focused on our gadgets that we're not looking around. People walk in the middle of the street and don't even look to see if there's traffic. So absolutely. Um, yeah, and if you see somebody with a bow and arrow in the grocery store, I think ducking would probably be a really good idea. I think Kyle is coming up with something there, but Jamie. Yeah, and I'll just um, you know, I just kind of you know kind of chime back in with what Sam um, brought up with Joe and and Paragon and the training that you guys provide. Um, you know, if if someone wants to, you know, those looking at these situations that have happened and and how unusual um, some of them are. Uh, there are still similarities and lessons that can be learned across all of them. And I think that's something you all really bring to the table is, is kind of drawing down on the, the, the key lessons and points um, that can be carried over to wherever you are. So where can folks find you all and, and find out how to customize a situation and a training scenario for their particular situation and, and location? Well, we'd definitely like to have folks reach out to us. They can find us at paragonmedicalgroup.com or on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group, or they can always reach us through the Disaster Podcast or the Disaster Podcast Facebook page. Great. And um, so um, let's see, start with uh, Becky here. Becky, where can folks follow what you're up to and uh, kind of keep a track of uh, all the, the great things you, you've been doing lately? Yeah, folks can find me over on Twitter at WX underscore Bex, though I've been keeping a lower profile over there lately and trying to minimize my social media time, um, but always on the Facebook uh, Disaster Podcast Facebook group page as well. Dan, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at WX Depot without the T and also in the uh, Disaster Facebook group. And Kyle, how about you? 
Well, Jamie, folks can find me on all the major social media platforms under the handle WX Kyle Nelson. I'd love to connect with our listeners and continue the conversation. And last but not least, Sam. In all the aforementioned places, under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, and in our very awesome and active Facebook community, and certainly on the disasterpodcast.com. Jamie? And, of course, I'm under the handle Podmedic in all those social media locations. So, you know, look us up. Um, each of us are available. And, and um, uh, certainly, if you have a question that, that any of our specialties can be ad- applied to, uh, tag us in the Facebook group as you leave the question, and we will try to get back to you. Um, this is a, a community where a lot of our guests from the past are also um, participants. So uh, try to... Uh, you know, ask those questions, bring those articles that are coming from your community in there and get a different perspective on um, what's going on. And we look forward to hearing from you. Um, good episode, Sam. It was, it was great kind of kind of covering this this topic from a different perspective and, and kind of seeing what's changed and what's what's still the same. Well, people should pay attention to any of these things that happen because we mentioned they're all different, and we learn something from each and every one of them. But I think uh, Becky kind of put the best point on it tonight, is be aware. You know, be aware of your surroundings. Don't have your face in your phone such that you might have danger lurking and you're not even aware of it. So situational awareness, people. <laughs>